You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show, what an episode I have for you. It's the return of Brett Weinstein. For those of you who do not know or missed our first episode with Brett, Brett is an American biologist and evolutionary theorist who came to national attention during the 2017 Evergreen State College protests. He is considered a member of the informal group known as the Intellectual Dark Web and is often credited for predicting the madness of our current times. Today on the show, Brett and I cover Trump's exit from the White House and how he should have played it, the presidency of Joe Biden and how it will have an effect on America, the world, and our chances of living in unity and harmony, big tech and the interference with censorship and cancellation, and how powerful the heads of these companies have become in the modern world. We touch on Sam Harris turning in his IDW card, and a lot, lot more. So enough from me, let's jump right into this episode with Brett Weinstein. Okay, Brett, it is a pleasure to be speaking with you again. Um, welcome back to the Freedom Pack podcast. Well, thanks for having me back. I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Now, it's been a few months since we last spoke. It was back in September um, and we spoke. The theme of the episode was about how to heal a broken society and come closer to unity. Now, a lot has happened since September. Are we any closer to achieving that goal? Well, I think we must have achieved it because I, I heard the new president say unity dozens of times in his uh, acceptance speech so, or his inauguration speech. So we must have gotten there. Am I wrong? <laughs> you believe him? Uh, no, I don't believe him. Um, well, let's put it this way. I think we missed an opportunity to recognize what had caused the Trump era and that uh, emergency action was necessary to escape that pattern. And what we have done is we have effectively restored a normal, very high quality kind of corruption, excellent production values. It's very compelling and reassuring if you only pay attention to the tone and you don't notice the details of what's happening. And so I guess I'm watching lots of very intelligent people breathe a sigh of relief over the exit of Donald Trump. And I understand what they're relieved about, but I don't understand why they can't see that there is a very different but uh, equally large hazard um, that has just reasserted itself. Mm. So, yeah, as you mentioned, at the time of recording, um, Donald Trump left the White House yesterday for the final time. 
however, he didn't go without a fight. Some may say kicking and screaming. Do you think that it would have been more beneficial to the people and their chances of harmony if he had left with maybe a little more grace and a little more humility? Oh, absolutely. I think this played to uh, his weakest suit, and uh, he he did not disappoint when it came to misplaying this last episode. Yes, if he had accepted defeat, even if he had formally expressed doubt, but if he had said something to the effect of, um, even if many of us harbor doubts about the election, uh, the peaceful transition of power and the uh, the rule of law is paramount. The courts have rendered their decision. I don't accept it, but uh, or I do accept it, even if I disagree with it. Um, we would be in a very different place, having um, protested and effectively indicated that the judgment of the courts was uh, tantamount to a stolen election. Um, he kicked off a set of events that has validated the fever dreams of those who were most rabidly anti-Trump and uh, cast the whole narrative into an extreme kind of doubt. Does the way that he played his exit surprise you at all? Or do you think that this was something that, you know, we should have expected from his character? Well... I always fear the election of a very needy person. And Donald Trump is nothing if not needy. He is basically a, uh, a bottomless chasm in search of adulation. And that meant that as he was facing the elimination of the validation he got from being president and being able to toy with his enemies from a position of power, um, he was certain to lash out in a childlike fashion, which he did. I also wonder about what took place behind the scenes after he was removed from uh, social media. There is a question about why he didn't pardon Assange and perhaps Snowden and whether there was leverage exerted against him. In other words, the, um, the impeachment but leaving the Senate trial indefinitely hanging as a sword of Damocles uh, gave his enemies leverage that may have prevented him from doing what he should have done um, in the hopes of uh, staving off something that would befall him personally. A lot of people have said that they wouldn't write off him uh, making another run at it. Do you think we've seen the end of Donald Trump in politics? I don't think we've seen the end of Donald Trump in politics. Will we see him run again? I think it would be almost certain, if not for the question of whatever deal might have been struck in the final hours of his presidency. In other words, I think his, uh, his enemies and detractors may have succeeded in um, shaping his incentives such that another run becomes impossible. In other words, maybe they uh, hold out some pursuit of him in the courts or through the Senate um, and that uh, 
if he attempts to return, they will then pull the trigger. Yeah, and of course, heavily tied into his exit were the the Capitol riots. For many, um, they appeared as this crazy one-off incident that sort of engulfed the news for a day or two. I mean, I'm from the UK and it was on my TV for two days straight. Uh, but how big of an impact do you think that that incident will have on the future of the political landscape? Well, I, I think we have to we have to look at it in two two ways. One, uh, it was a very serious phenomenon, right? Having people actually uh, breach the Capitol security and enter the chambers and chase the members of Congress uh, out under possible threat. Um, that is very, very serious. On the other hand, the degree to which it's going to be used as an excuse to now ratchet up a campaign against what is being misportrayed as domestic terrorism and white supremacy and all of the rest, um, that is an important fact in and of itself. So it was a significant historical moment, but it's going to be used to full effect by people who are not responding out of fear, but are responding out of opportunity. Um, and we should be very, uh, very concerned about what they will do in its wake. There's certainly talk about something like a 9-11 commission. Uh, and uh, the, the whole idea that this was terrorism is preposterous. Now, that's not to say that there weren't individuals involved in that riot um, who may have been interested in something that could be called terrorism. But the riot was not well-coordinated. Obviously, um, one doesn't put on a Viking helmet uh, in order to terrify the population. That was a symbolic gesture. So the idea that um, the people who uh, had ill intent, the people who committed violence were of like mind with the people who did something uh, symbolic, um, you know, a symbolic insurrection, um, that's not correct. And the idea that those who breached the Capitol were of like mind with those who stood peaceably out front uh, in a normal American protest, that's also not uh, an alignment. So we we need to be very careful to, to not globalize what we saw. And in fact, you may have seen on Twitter a couple of days ago, a very... Uh, very well-produced video emerged. Don Winslow put it out, it, uh, something about uh, Trump's new army. And the idea was that on Inauguration Day, he was going to cease being commander-in-chief of the American military and take up the role of commander-in-chief of a, uh, a terrorist army, which visually was portrayed as the large number of people protesting uh, on Trump's behalf. This is a preposterous notion and a diabolical one, and um, we must be very careful. Many of the things I warned about in our initial discussion uh, are now uh, even more of a danger by virtue of these kinds of portrayals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In our original discussion, you did um, say that these type of uh, protests, these type of riots were a realistic possibility. Um, you did actually predict you know, this a similar sort of thing happening in our first conversation. So when the news broke and you first heard it, you must not have been surprised at all. You know, I am in recent times, I'm sort of 
constantly in a state of both shock that these things are actually happening and um, I am reassured, not in a very positive way, but I'm reassured that my model is accurate because it does seem to provide some glimpse ahead. And yes, of course, these uh, riots were possible. But even knowing that that's the case does not prepare one to see their capital breached, to see a police officer uh, literally beaten to death um, by an angry uh, crowd convinced of uh, something that is murky at best. And of course, now President Biden is at the helm. Um, I've seen many people suggesting that he almost acted as a guise for Kamala Harris to to get into office. How realistic is that view? And what does having a black female in office do for our chances of unity? Oh, that's a that's a good pair of questions that I I think are almost unrelated. So let me let me separate them. So. I will say Biden, since the election, has shown much less, as far as I can tell, much less of the decrepitude that we saw in the run-up to it. I have no idea what to make of that, whether um, there has been some sort of tinkering with medications and they've gotten some sort of creeping dementia under control. I, I have no idea. but. Um, I thought there was serious doubt that he would actually take the office if elected. I was obviously wrong. Uh, he did take the office, and uh, I now think it is possible he'll go all four years. I also think it's possible that there will be some sort of a uh, a shift in order to make uh, Kamala into an incumbent for 2024. Um, but I, I don't know. I would say my worst fears did not come to pass in this regard. Now, in some sense, it doesn't matter a great deal because Joe Biden is a um, a very standard, uh, he is the standard bearer for the DNC. Um, Kamala Harris would be no different at a policy level. It would, of course, be symbolically different to have a woman as president and a black woman at that. Um, in terms of whether it brings us closer, I would say the problem is, symbolically, it could in the same way that Obama might have brought us closer. And the simple fact of having elected a black man uh, was important to the nation. In fact, I think it's one of the most important indicators that the stories of rampant white supremacy can't possibly be true. Um, however, the way uh, Kamala Harris behaves, her obvious political ambitions and the sense, the impression that she leaves that everything is subordinate to her, uh, to her ascent does not point towards anything I would call unity, quite the opposite. I think she will use what power she has to political effect. And um, what, what we will see is symbolic at best and very likely to be cynical. Wow. Wow. And you mentioned Joe Biden and the use of the word unity in his speech. What do you predict from the presidency of Joe Biden? And is he the kind of leader that can unite a nation? Well, let me be clear about this. Maybe I should have said this at the, at the top. 
every time a new president ascends to the office, I think we are obligated to give that person a chance. And I would like nothing better than for Joe Biden to surprise me and to turn out to be a great leader. And in fact, the possibility is real. This is somebody who has spent his life in politics. He has observed the corruption up close. And if he were to reach that office and say, you know what, I'm an old man, I'm going to be a footnote president if I just do the DNC's bidding. On the other hand, this is my chance to do something for a country I love. Um, he could be the greatest president in history. Now, I said the same thing about Donald Trump when he took the office. I didn't want to see him take the office. I didn't expect him to do marvelous things. He actually did a few things that I was um, pleasantly surprised by. But nonetheless, he had the opportunity to do something um, historic in a very positive sense. So I leave open that possibility with Joe Biden. I'm not expecting it to happen. I'm expecting that by the time someone ascends to the uh, most powerful position in the world through a route of crony capitalism, they are so trained in that mode that they can't even see that they have a different opportunity. So I am open to great things from Joe Biden, but I would bet the other way. Okay. Yeah. Let's hope. Now, let's hope. Yeah, let's hope is right. I, I will say also, though, some things will simply be better. Rejoining the, um, the Paris uh, Accord on climate is a positive thing. Now, frankly, I think the Paris Accord is too little too late, but even just symbolically, the recognition that we have an obligation to be part of a global solution to a global problem, that's important. And it's exactly the kind of thing that uh, Trump failed to do well um, because of a kind of cynicism and because politically the issue uh, was so valuable to him as a, a leverage point. So we will see some positive, positive change in certain directions, but I don't expect it to amount to much. We're not going to see good governance because the system is so corrupt on both sides that it's incapable of that. Mm -hmm. From the outside looking in, um, obviously I'm from the UK, we were perplexed by the suggestion of voter fraud in your election. That is something that I think over here we can't even imagine a possibility of that being true uh, in the United Kingdom. Is there even an iota of possibility behind that allegation? Is that even possible? You know, I hate to say it because there's a trap set around this issue. Of mm -hmm. course it's possible. Uh, the fact is the system of voting is so baroque that um, the idea that anyone could be so certain of it that it, this is impossible uh, is preposterous, especially in light of the highly charged rhetoric around the danger of Donald Trump being reelected. In other words, this was cast as um, you know, a, a last-ditch effort to avert creeping tyranny. And so the incentive for somebody uh, mistaken but well-intentioned to engage in this was clearly there. And the problem is uh, we, we seem to have a very short memory about this. There is um, concern about voter fraud all the time. Now, sometimes that concern is cynical, 
In other words, sometimes the right in, in the U.S. Uh, portrays the danger of people voting who aren't eligible or voting twice as serious. And the fact is, it's very, very unlikely that anything could shift an election. But we've also had concern stretching, stretching back into the Bush era about uh, voting machines that behaved in an odd way, that clearly weren't secure, that could be demonstrated to do things where they shifted votes from one party to another. So there's nothing new about these concerns. Um, what's new was the context. And my sense is the possibility always exists. We have to be vigilant about preventing fraud, and we have to be vigilant about investigating it. In this case, it was investigated. Nothing that amounted to proof emerged. Doesn't mean I haven't seen anomalies that I think are, are suspicious. Um, but in the end, the court ruled I don't know of any reason to think that our courts are captured. They may lean in directions that some of us like and some of us don't. But nonetheless, a court looked at the evidence and it routinely threw out the claim that there was massive fraud, fraud enough to have shifted the election. And I think we are obligated to, to accept that formally. That is to say, the peaceful transition of power should have happened. Trump should have accepted that gracefully on the basis that the courts had ruled and the courts are important uh, to the protection of all of us. And that doesn't mean that he couldn't have continued to pursue the question as a private citizen. Um, what happened was completely unacceptable. Um, but I would also point out that among the things that I got right, in advance of the election, I attempted to create a project that would have generated a, an accountable, secure, uh, electronic voting mechanism that would have unified the states so that we had one system that would be um, easily observed. And that did not happen. And what I discovered in the process of attempting to create that under the unity banner was that there is no interest in creating a unified system. And in fact, it is understood to be impossible under normal circumstances because of the 50 separate bureaucracies that govern voting rules. Um, and then, so the plan was to build the app effectively, to use a prize, a substantial financial prize to get the app to be built quickly. And then at the point that the election was contested and it was recognized by everyone that we had a tremendous problem that was born of all of these different systems and the way they interact, um, that at that point there would be interest uh, a general interest across all of these jurisdictions in adopting this new method. So the hope was that what was clearly going to unfold would stimulate people to solve the problem for next time. Now, it happens we couldn't get the prize running because people didn't like the idea that um, this was going to have to wait. In other words, using a predictable catastrophe in order to stimulate people to solve an obvious problem is not your standard move, and so it didn't occur. But um, it does mean that uh, this problem was not a surprise. This problem was well understood, and in the context of this election, it was uh, all but guaranteed to unfold. It is ex extremely interesting. The reason I wanted to mention uh, voter fraud was it's topics like these that seem to be dividing people online more than ever. Um, even within the intellectual dark web, we saw 
Sam Harris uh, turning his IDW card in in a really um, passionate episode of uh, the Waking Up podcast. What does that tell us about the divide that 2020 has caused? And what do what statement do you think that Sam was trying to make by turning in his IDW card? Well, I'm I'm in a bit of a bind because although Sam did not mention me by name, I think he was clearly responding uh, to me, at least, maybe not alone. Um, and I think he was angry at me. And frankly, I think he had some right to be. I was a little bit uh, careless in discussing this issue where it came to Sam. And I'm, uh, I feel bad about that. And I hope that he'll, at some point, as the dust has settled, um, be willing to talk about uh, what I might have done differently and where he is with the matter. But um, if we put that aside, there are a great many Americans, um, including Sam Harris, one of the highest quality minds that we have, who saw Trump in a very special light. And because they saw him in a very special light, the sense is, and in fact, Sam said very directly, that it wasn't that he didn't see the corruption of the system running in its usual form, but that the hazard of somebody uh, as disconnected from reality and volatile as Trump inhabiting such a powerful office was so great that we were effectively obligated to sideline our other concerns until that threat had passed. And I certainly understand the argument. I don't agree with it. And the primary reason I don't agree with it is that the election of Trump itself was responsive to that uh, corrupt environment. And, you know, one way to look at the, uh, the American political situation is that we have different factions effectively involved in separate witch hunts. We have a very low quality diagnosis of what's gone wrong, near universal understanding that something is very far off. And, you know, you've got uh, the QAnon faction, you've got the uh, BLM uh, faction, you've got all of these different groups looking for the enemy that they can drive out of the system in order to restore order. None of it's going to work. Trump being a symptom and us not curing the underlying problem means that not only could Trump return or something Trump-like return, but something far worse than Trump could take his place. I thought from the beginning of the Trump era that, in effect, this was the trial run, right? That all of this portrayal of him as this monstrous demagogue was missing the point, right? He was uh, too needy, and I don't, you know, he, he, let's put it this way. He did a very poor job of being a dictator. All of the promises that he was Hitlerian turned out to be preposterous, as many of us suspected they were. So that being the case, now we know we had a trial run at something and we fumbled the ball. We did not take the opportunity to, uh, to come together as Americans and confront the underlying dysfunction and corruption that set the stage for Donald Trump. And that means that whatever it is uh, that people fear about that, we'll be back. Now, a lot of people say that at the epicenter of crowd madness has been 
Portland, Oregon, which I believe is where you live. Um, it sure is. I want to give a little bit of a shout out as well, because it was on the Dark Horse podcast, which is a phenomenal podcast if anyone uh, hasn't checked it out yet. I think it was when you were speaking with Douglas Murray and Douglas described uh, Portland as a third world city. Why do you think he described it as a third world city? It's a great question. I don't know exactly. I certainly know what he's responding to. We have, for example, a massive homelessness problem that is just absolutely unignorable. Now, there are lots of parts of the city where you don't see it. But if you go anywhere near downtown or the industrial centers, and indeed in many of the, the neighborhoods in the flatlands of Portland, you do see it everywhere. Um, so that does suggest something about the squalor one often sees in the developing world outside of major metropolitan areas and, and inside them as well. Um, there is also a kind of banana republic aspect to our governance, that we have a, a mayor who refuses to enforce the law. Um, even the day of, of Joe Biden's inauguration, we had Antifa smashing in the windows of the local Democratic Party headquarters uh, with banners that say things like, we are ungovernable. These people are simply um, announcing that they have no intention of abiding by the law, that the entire idea that they were responding to Trump was nonsense for the, from the beginning. And yet we don't see the crackdown that is necessary just simply to restore the rule of law so that businesses can proceed, so that people can, so that there's an economic base here in Portland. So that failure of governance is suggestive of things people see in the, de the developing world. And I I'm stuck a little bit with, with Douglas's comparison because it's not exact. I don't have the sense in Portland that it feels like, uh, like a third world country. Um, on the other hand, I know from having been in many foreign capitals that, that meet that description, that oftentimes they are surprising in many ways. So it's possible he just, uh, his comparison is simply apt and we ought to heed it. And I think, as I said to him on the podcast, there's something special about having had a Brit come over during COVID uh, and be properly shocked by the state of things because, of course, you get used to what's around you. And um, to have a visitor look at this and, you know, uh, grasp for proper comparisons was uh, was alarming. Yeah, it really is a good episode. I, I encourage everyone to check that one out. Um, more generally, from, from over here, we hear a lot of people speaking very um, disparagingly about California. There seems to be this big mass exodus going on at the moment. We've heard criticisms of uh, Mayor Gavin Newsom, homelessness, uh, tax, all these reasons why people seem to be jumping ship. Uh, a lot of high profile people. I mean, Joe Rogan has, has jumped ship to Texas. He seems to be trying to take everyone with him. What are your thoughts on the on the current state of California and, and where do you see ahead in with this big exodus? So I should say I'm a California native, as is my wife, and I'm very disturbed. It looks like um, a 
near total failure of good governance has resulted in um, catastrophic dysfunction. And one cannot ever forget that Americans have the liberty to move between states to vote with their feet. And so the irony of all of this is that well-intentioned liberal voters have ushered in policies that are not sensible, that basically signal um, values rather than function to, to improve systems, and that the consequence is to render the state less and less livable, which will render it less and less profitable with a smaller and smaller tax base. The uh, liberal values that were sought by uh, West Coast voters will be that much farther away, and people will flee the dysfunction. And one fear I have heard expressed by those who are smart enough to see the problem is that those well-intentioned wealthy liberals who are in a position to flee to Texas and elsewhere will carry the same misunderstanding about governance with them, and they will cause that dysfunction wherever they go. So time will tell, but I do think it's time that we had a hard-headed reckoning with what we aspire to and what the mechanisms are that actually allow it. I know we keep using the, the USA as the main example here, but even in the UK, it seems to be that the political divide is the largest that I've ever witnessed in, in my 24 years on this planet. Um, I'm not from England, I'm from Wales, so I don't want to speak for England, but I feel like I have good enough view to, to, to uh, comment on that as well. But it seems as though there's no room for conversation anymore. Um, you know, why do you think we've moved away from being able to have debates that don't spiral into outrage, that don't spiral into violence and conversations where firstly, we can listen to someone else's opinion. And secondly, we can always, you know, agree to disagree. We, we can't seem to do that anymore. Well, I think there are two things going on. Um, the more interesting answer to your question is that human society is built on an evolutionary substrate. That is to say, the way that we interact with each other is an ancient mode, but it is, it is now occurring in a thoroughly novel form. The idea of us having conversations like you and I are now having, is this a face-to-face -face conversation? Is this a transatlantic conversation? It's obviously both. Is it a very personal conversation in some ways? Yes. Are we friends? I've never met you. On the other hand, we've spent, you know, uh, more than an hour in conversation. So all of these things are new. And the point I'm trying to make is that evolutionarily, we, we always say that creatures are adapted to their environment. Creatures are not adapted to their environment. They are adapted to the environment of their ancestors. And usually those two things are very similar. When the environment of a creature has changed, it will very frequently suffer from diseases of maladaptation. And the problem is even worse when the rate of change is so high that the process of evolution cannot catch up. So we are living in a hyper novel environment that is in fact the subject of the book that my wife and I uh, will release this year, Hypernovelty. And 
the point would be in environments like Twitter and Facebook and the world of, of uh, online media, new phenomena emerge. They may be born of very mundane uh, considerations like how to get eyeballs to look at a particular piece of content so that an advertiser will uh, pay to append their product to it. But what we don't understand is that tiny little perturbations in the way that we interact may have massive repercussions. So, sorry, this has been a long-winded answer, but the the thing I fear, something I said on the Dark Horse podcast uh, some weeks ago, was that we are told, and many people are familiar with the line of logic that says that we are being fed outrage or things that will outrage us in order to keep us engaged and that in some sense uh, we want that or that we want um, you know, to hear our own opinions reflected back at us. And I think this is far too simple. I believe, based on you know, conversations like the one you and I are having, conversations that we see across the intellectual dark web and in many heterodox corners of the podcast world, we see that people tune in to be challenged. And that shouldn't surprise us. We were also told that they needed uh, sitcoms that were so dumb they could sit mindlessly in front of the TV, but it turns out they like Game of Thrones. So there is a willingness to engage um, complex, challenging ideas. The problem, though, I think, or at least one of them, is that because the business model of the internet is so thoroughly based around advertising, and because you are only a good consumer when your conscious mind is turned off and you are taking in content on autopilot, that even though the people who are engaged with the internet might be ready to level up and deal with more challenging, complex content, that those who are most valuable, those who are compliant and ready to be persuaded by an attractive model that some vehicle is more valuable than they would otherwise have thought, those people are the goal because that's where the money comes from. So in other words, I fear that the internet is evolving to lure us into an unconscious state in order to make us uh, compliant consumers and that the byproduct of being lured into that unconscious state is that we are engaging content that does not cause us to rise to consciousness and we may um, sleepwalk into uh, an absolute catastrophe. Oh, I know we're short on time and I, and I want to st- uh, honor your schedule. Um, there's just, if we can, there's one more topic I'd like to touch on before you leave. Um, it's, a, it's been a big topic already at the start of 2021. It is big tech with censorship and banning even the most powerful people in the world obviously the the president at the time. Do you think that these private companies have, one, the right, and two, the responsibility to monitor what can and cannot be said on their platform, or is that a direct threat to free speech? Well, what I would say is that free speech is paramount, and the fact that our speech is now so thoroughly online means that the protections have to, in one way or another, extend to the online environment. 
that said, I don't relish the position of the online platforms as much as I find their behavior to be despicable. The job that they have to do um, uh, in terms of deciding what it is that crosses the line and can't be present is not an enviable one. So I believe we have to have government step in, set the boundary, and protect our rights to speak. The rules for what may be said on the platform have to be transparent. There has to be the equivalent of a court that adjudicates claims that something has crossed the line. You have to be in a position to see the evidence against you. All of those protections that we Americans are so used to deriving from our Constitution have to be extended into the new uh, online world. And my fear is because government in the U.S. has been so thoroughly captured by powerful economic interests that it will be impossible for anything um, as uh, wise as the Constitution to be generated for the online environment because there will effectively be a feeding frenzy in which those with great power seek to uh, amplify it and jockey for position with each other in creating rules that give them further advantage. And the, the last one from me, so going into 2021 right now, we just spoke about big tech. Do you think these guys at the head of these big tech companies like Jack at Twitter, can we probably consider them the most powerful people in the world now, even more so than politicians? Um, I do think they are the most powerful people in the world, which doesn't necessarily mean that they are wielding that power at full strength yet. But I believe they have it at their disposal. And... Um, if they are wise, they will recognize that they don't want it, that the responsibility of having that kind of power when they have simply normal levels of human insight and wisdom is frightening. And, you know, unfortunately, what we don't have is uh, a group of founding father-like uh, people who we agree to collectively listen to. And, you know, the original American founders sweated the details because the details mattered and they knew it. And they were exemplary in putting their own interests aside in having those discussions. And that's just simply not the culture we have now. So in addition to not having uh, the kinds of uh, transparency, the deliberative bodies that allowed the founders to create a document like the Constitution. What we have are um, tiny secret cabals that decide all of our fate based on the fact that somebody said something that sounded clever and uh, somebody put it up on the whiteboard. Brett, thank you so much for joining me for the, the your second appearance on the Freedom Pack podcast. Um, there are a million things I could speak to you about. You mentioned WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, all things I'd like to speak to you again about one day in the future. So uh, I hope we get to do this again sometime. And thank you as always for coming on the show. Thank you. And I look forward to our next one. As always, we appreciate you tuning in to this episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. If you'd like to view this or any other of our interviews in video format. They are all available on YouTube, so head over to YouTube and search Freedom Pact and hit that subscribe button. It really, really helps us out. Other than that, 
we will see you guys again on Friday. So please join us for another episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. Thank you so much for listening.